Name of my firm is Fogden Bookkeeping, although interestingly, we're undergoing a name and branding change to Snow and Blair, and that's what we will start calling ourselves this fall because bookkeeping doesn't pay. Um, it's become become commoditized. You know, the, the computer can do that. And so we've for a long time provided a premium service, but you can't charge a premium when you call yourself bookkeeper. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. And Megan, we didn't coach you up at all. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's your cue. And I'm Megan Valero. Awesome. Megan, you're here on the podcast. Welcome. I'm so excited to be here today, guys. Yeah, I followed you on Twitter. We have followed each other and now we get to talk to each other. And I heard we might actually get to meet in real life eventually. Yes. Yes. I'm going to be at AccountEx in a couple weeks podcast is going to AccountEx. And so I understand you'll be there too. And I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to meet you and everyone else who's going to go. And, and there's a 80, no, 78% chance I get to go. Oh yeah. You have, uh, you, uh, you have federal uh, jury duty. Federal grand jury duty. And so, I did some research and there's a 22.4% chance of me being picked. So, been- so you, you ask people on Twitter, like, what should you do? Should you buy the non-refundable plane ticket? Or should you buy the refundable plane ticket for twice as much? And I think the the smart answer was, since you have an 80% chance of going, you should buy the cheaper ticket. That's where I'm at as well. Because I, yeah. I'm i kind of in the mindset of, if I wind up buy the, the non-refundable, the more expensive ticket, and I go, I'm going to be mad that I overpaid 2x for a ticket. Well, and you'd be out the same amount, right? Which is approximately like 300. Exactly. And so I'll be less upset or equally as upset if I don't go <laughs> and I'm just out 300 bucks. So, so yeah. hopefully though, yeah, if everybody can uh, do a little cheer for me, maybe I won't go or maybe I'll just tweet out some crazy stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, then they won't let me in the jury. I think the real risk management analysis question here, what are the consequences of not showing up? I don't know. Am I allowed, even allowed to be talking about this? <laughs> I, I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> this could be bad. <laughs> this might be the end of me being on the podcast. Well, you, you can you can actually get out of jury duty now because you can say like I already talked about it on the uh, on the show on the Cloud Accounting podcast, and everybody listens to that. So I'm now biased. You're a member of the press. So yeah, you're a member of the press, David. Oh, so I can't serve on the jury, maybe. Yeah, That's exactly. True. So the, the the real lesson here is everybody. If you're going to Accountex, you're going to be in Boston, look for the Cloud Accounting Podcast and definitely come by and say hi to Blake. I'll be there doing a bunch of interviews. Not sure exactly who we're talking to yet. We're finalizing those details and I'm looking forward to like having a booth at the event. And then Megan, you are running an event in Boston. Around the same time frame, Friday morning. Tell us about that. Friday morning from nine to noon, we are going to be hosting an event called Inclusion Without Assimilation encouraging diversity and inclusion within the accounting, finance, and fintech world. Um, And we're going to be right down the street at WeWork on Boylston Street, so less than two blocks. And what was the inspiration for this event that you're putting together? Well, I think we all recognize that within the um, accounting and CPA world, there is not enough diversity of people. And Mm -hmm. we see that reflected in not all, but a lot of the accounting conferences and professional forums that we attend. Um, And so we wanted to provide um, an event for folks where that was not the case. Um, The case has been made to myself and others repeatedly that there's not enough qualified people of color, women, or, you know, LGBTQ, whatever sort of your diversity inclusion makeup is. Um, and that's, I think we all just know that that's 
malarkey um, that these people mm-hmm. are out there. You might have to look for them. You might have to travel outside your own real close social circle, but there are plenty of qualified people out there. So in a period of about uh, two and a half weeks, we have put together a qualified panel, found a space, found sponsorship, um, and are executing an event in Boston. Um, and we hope it will serve as a model for others that want to do this. And is this event like a, just one panel discussion or is it going to be two or three speakers? Can you give a little elaborate on who's doing it or who's participating? So we're going to have um, two featured speakers and then a panel. So we are lucky enough to have, have Adrienne Penta. Um, she is the founder of the Center for Women and Wealth at Brown Brothers Harriman. Um, so she recognized very early on that the conversation with women around investment and family wealth transfer needed to be a little bit different. Um, and so she is going to come and speak to everybody about, you know, even in a big business environment, a big bank, um, you can create these opportunities and change up the conversation in a big way. And she is going to be followed by Jana Etene, who you have had on your show. It's how I discovered her. You guys had her on at Scaling New Heights. And I think she really has hit the nail on the head that when you have conversations about inclusion, you don't leave out the white guy. The inclusion has to be for everybody. And if you're asking people in your company, no matter the size, to leave their true self outside the door, you're not actually being inclusive. And she has some real rubber meets the road ideas about how we can do this better. So she's going to give a short presentation. And then we're going to bring in Neo Carter Gray from First Up Accounting, Michael Lee from Reconciled, and Giganthi Gurajan, who is the founder of FinTech Women in Boston, locally to us, along with Jana and Adrian. And we're going to have a panel discussion about really being inclusive in our work environments, encouraging diversity in our industry, and how we help promote and move forward a variety of different people from all different backgrounds um, and create welcoming environments that hopefully change up the makeup of our industry as we go forward um, in a time of a lot of change. And so that event, again, for our listeners is Inclusion Without Assimilation. It's September 6th in Boston. Should we put the link to that Eventbrite page in our show notes? Is that the best place for people to go to sign up, Megan? It is. It is. All right. So we'll have that link there in the show notes. Head over there and, and, and register. So maybe we should jump in the news this week. Yeah. But before that, we do have reviews. So let's preview the news quickly. Intuit released their earnings. Uh, I've got some QuickBooks online updates. Expensify has a, a new CPE course you can take if you need some CPE. We've got layoffs. I think I mentioned the layoffs last week, but never got to them. So I'll be sure to talk about them. <laughs> This time. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about Uber taking cash. Okay. And it's very hard. It's an accounting problem. Interesting. Uh, I got a bunch of tax stories. Uh, the IRS is actually so underfunded, it's losing out on billions of dollars of revenue. So a great article about bookkeeping and advisory that I think will be uh, interesting. And maybe Megan can give her input on that. And security issues, again, lots of security problems. And this one definitely we got to talk about is uh, Ryan Lozanis has an article about using help desk software in your accounting firm. Perfect. So we'll jump into the reviews. So we have a lot of reviews this week. And the reason why is we finally have popped the cork and now people can write reviews not on iTunes. And so we have about seven reviews, I think, to the, for this week. So I think I'll just 
jump in with the first one and then like you let's read the next one and we'll just hammer all these out all right sounds good all right so uh this one is uh an itunes review it says nerds podcast top podcast for accountants want to know what's happening in our industry you have found the place to go david and blake are engaging cutting edge and do their homework to provide an insightful and engaging podcast keep your practice relevant by staying on the, in the know listen to the cloud accounting podcast Thank you. C. Flaherty said five stars. This podcast is a great way to stay on top of the latest trends in accounting. It's a must listen. Steve Chase. This is the podcast to listen to if you are a bookkeeper or an accounting firm owner. I enjoy listening to so many great tech news, accounting discussions and interviews. It's great content and I'm very excited to be tapped into this podcast as we journey together in the knowledge economy. Thanks, David and Blake. Jim Brown said, a great podcast that even touches on the UK perspective directly. As a mid-sized firm over here trying to look at digital workflows, adopt a cloud-first policy, and connect all our applications seamlessly, it's hard to keep up with everything that's going on, and you guys do a great job of providing an overview of changes and some insight into what they mean. Joe Lacayo left a five-star review. This is the most up-to-date current content for the entire accounting industry, exclamation point. Whether you are getting into the industry or have an experienced pillar of your own professional network, this podcast will allow you to always have a grip on the pulse of where the accounting world is headed. Blueprint Brian said there's no better way to hear about top news stories in the accounting ecosystem. David and Blake share the news of the day, but I love it when they have special guests on that share their stories. That Sean Canungo interview from ZeroCon San Diego 2019 was amazing. And it was. And if you haven't heard that, go check out the archives and listen to Sean Canungo talk about moving from being a linear accountant to an exponential accountant. Amy McPherson, I am the owner of a small firm working exclusively with nonprofit organizations to help them build efficient financial management systems. This podcast is a must listen for our entire team. Blake and Dave, David have done deep roots in the SaaS accounting community and really understand what's important for us to know. They provide an invaluable service of finding the interesting news stories that impact our work and package it into a dialogue that is easy to listen to. I never miss an episode and don't know how we're going to get along without it. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. And finally, thank you everyone for sticking with us through all these reviews. Niall Carter Gray said, this is the absolute best podcast to stay up to date with all things going on in the future forward accounting space. Blake and David have a great chemistry and they often have great guests on the show. I tune in for every episode. So thank you everyone for all those reviews. The reviews help and they mean a lot. It means a lot to me personally to read these and and hear from everybody, but they really help others discover the show. So it's super important. So either on iTunes, leave a review or on podchaser.com, leave a review there as well. And we will read it on the air. So let's talk about Intuit earnings, right? Intuit earnings. Yeah. So Intuit announced their earnings Thursday, yesterday. I think the big news is just the revenues up like crazy, mm-hmm. um, up 15% uh, year over year. Um, the QuickBooks online ecosystem grew by 30 for the revenue grew by 35%. And the number that's really amazing is QuickBooks online finished the year with 4.5 million QBO subscribers. Wow. And that that grew at thirty three percent. Yeah, that's that's uh, amazing. Did you have a chance to listen to the conference call at all? No, I, I didn't. Did not listen to that. What's anything interesting? I did not think there was anything that we don't haven't already spoken about. But Tassan did talk about they they really want they think they can disrupt the mid market. Mm-hmm. So QuickBooks Online Advanced, they're looking to go up mid market. They're very very bullish on QuickBooks on, Online. I'm sorry, QuickBooks Live, mm-hmm. right? Which we've talked about before in the past. The only real nugget that I think I came out of there was there's a comment that they're really going to possibly focus on product based businesses, specifically omni channel. Forty percent of all QuickBooks um, users are product based businesses. And they want to make sure, like, if they are selling a product and the products in QuickBooks, they can get it onto all the e-commerce stores they need to get it on. 
that, that is it's interesting that Twitter wants to attack that. And if they can solve it, it's great. But it's also super, super hard. The whole e-commerce, multi-stores, multi-channel. A lot of people are trying to attack that. But it's if Intuit can do it, 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 it would be amazing. It's just it's going to be tough. It's a really, really tough space to, to pull everything together perfectly in one spot. So Megan, you're a pro advisor, am I right? And what's the name of your firm? Name of my firm is Fogden Bookkeeping, although interestingly, and not because of QuickBooks Live, but sort of simultaneously, they sort of hit us at the right moment. We're undergoing a name and branding change to Snow and Blair. Um, and that's what we will start calling ourselves this fall because bookkeeping doesn't pay. Oh, interesting. Um, it's become become commoditized it's you know the the computer can do that and so we've for a long time provided a premium service but you can't charge a premium when you call yourself bookkeeper wow so this is the quickbooks live effect in action right here yeah yeah i mean not that quickbooks live is completely responsible for it but a lot of these companies that are getting into this game right Uh, commoditizing bookkeeping for a flat monthly fee that is just way too low for most of us as professionals to compete with, right? Exactly. And so we had started this process six months before that announcement came and it just felt really well-timed. Well, I've got an update about QuickBooks. Uh, The August 2019 What's New in QuickBooks Online. The big news is that Intuit has added employee benefits to QuickBooks payroll. So now you can compare, buy, and manage employee health benefits through QuickBooks. And when I saw the screenshot of the different plans available and all that, I said, oh, wow, this looks a lot like Gusto. I don't know if you've seen that, Megan. Do you do you use the Intuit uh, like payroll in QuickBooks or are you using something else? Like I'm curious to know. No, so we offer payroll services outside of um, Intuit QuickBooks. It, majority of our payroll clients are here in the state of Massachusetts, and we have found um, that they have a really hard time with those smaller state taxes, the things that change more frequently, mm-hmm. um, have funny thresholds. And so we've just never found it to be a good solution for us. Now that Massachusetts is rolling out this paid family medical leave, um, which they put a pin in for a little bit. And now we're back at the deadline again. It just doesn't meet our needs. The paid family medical leave in Massachusetts will cover independent contractors as well as employees, Oh wow! which is a huge change for all the payroll software companies, yeah. including Intuit. And Intuit just doesn't have a solution for how to deal with that yet. So what do you use? We use Evolution Software and we partner with a CPA firm outside of Boston um, that provides our tax filing and advisory piece of it. And we do the client services and the administration of the payroll. And it's been a really profitable market sector for us. Gotcha. So I have a payroll related story. Okay. Um, Zero, who previously we've covered, uh, has gotten in a deep partnership with Gusto, which is a payroll provider. They're now getting into a deep relationship with um, OnPay. So OnPay is an online payroll service similar to what we were just talking about. But OnPay must have some sort of uh, better understanding of farm payroll and farm credit. And so Zero, who's obviously chasing agriculture here in the U.S., is now going to go into a deeper partnership with OnPay uh, targeting agricultural. So this is interesting because my mom grew up on a farm and that family farm is still in the family. And so I'm going to have to tell my cousins about this. Maybe they can uh, use OnPay and Zero now. We'll get some uh, in the field reporting. Uh, I, I have more app news. Expensify has added CPE credits to their training and certification course. And when I saw it, I thought, this is brilliant. Every single app that offers a training course should offer CPE for it. Why don't they? 
because it's not that hard to do. I've been doing it for a few years now at Flowcast, uh, you know, doing like we got CPE certified, we do webinars uh, that are CPE, and it's amazing just how much more engagement you get. We doubled our, our webinar attendance rate just by offering CPE. So I'm thinking every single app that has some sort of training course for their app offers CPE, give it away for free. And I, I think this is probably just the beginning of a whole Expensify CPE program where the, you know it would make sense to offer more uh, courses down the road. And I've seen a, a number of apps do this successfully. So uh, if you are a developer and you're listening, you know, it's worth it. Go, go get the, go fill out the form so you can offer CP. Or if you don't want to do that, you can partner with somebody who is already doing that. And uh, Amanda Aguilard of Elephant Training, she uh, suggested online, hey, you know, we can help you create those courses and offer them with CP and you don't have to go do it. So with both of you being accountants, if you have to, if you're going to continue your CP, if you have a choice, hey, I'm going to learn about app A or app B and app A has training with CP. Are you just by, by default going to do that training first, regardless, even if the, the other app might even be the better app? Well, is that the logic? I'd be curious to know. Well, M- Megan, uh, do you have to get you don't do you need CPE? So I don't need CPE. I very conscientiously made the choice to work within the accounting field without being a CPA. Um, and I think that there's pros and cons to that. And I'm sure that that's a great debate in the industry that we won't soak up time with here. (laughs) But so I, I'm not required to get the CPEs. Um, but I do attend a lot of those classes throughout the year to try to, you know, stay Mm -hmm. involved in the industry, make sure I know what's going on and, and, you know, even though I'm not required to be professional. And as a CPA, I I don't think it would make me take one class versus another. If I, I pro- it would really depend on uh, the the application, right? I'm not going to choose two competitors. I'm not going to choose between competitors because of the CPE. But it would certainly make it more likely for me to actually take the time and effort to do the training course. Which, you know, if you're a developer, you need people to do that so they understand how things work and they're successful in your partner program. Yep. No, that makes sense. All right. What's next? I have a thing about Uber. Let's talk about Uber. Uber's customers paid more than $6 billion in cash last year. I I don't understand this because I've never paid cash for Uber. How does this work? So, so, and this is like 30, oh, sorry, 13% of all the rides were cash. What? And so what? because they're in, they're in places like India, Brazil, Mexico, um, some oh. parts of Europe, the Middle East, Latin America, they take cash. And it's it's a very risky, hard thing to account for. Right, and that's that, that's basically the article. I just, I, it's such a shocking, jaw dropping amount. Six billion dollars they have to account for. So wait, like, how does that work? So the driver takes the cash, and Uber. How does Uber ever get their cut? Well, they have to implement very expensive systems so the drivers can collect it and deposit it. Oh wow! And then then it rolls up. the The interesting thing for me, the observation is the whole selling point I always liked about Uber or Lyft is it eliminated that weird like oh I gotta have cash for the taxi yeah, cab driver. That's, that's the worst and then, part. Then they get there and they want a tip, and it's all and you never have enough, and it's all weird, right? Yeah. Like I don't went away, and it was it was you press a button, get out of the car, or get out of the car, and then press the button twenty minutes later if you want. I'm really surprised that big percentage of their business is that old model. I'm oh. not. Huh. Well. I, well, uh, spe- go ahead. You said you're mad. No, I'm not. I'm not surprised. I think you know, in in America, and even more so in Australia and UK, we're very you know credit card and and such focused. But you know, internationally, cash is still king. You know, when we talk, when we look at clients um, that are doing things across borders, and even when we get 
large groups of employees that are coming internationally on visas, cash is still king. Like they're very suspect of the check. Um, it's just a different cultural attitude towards the exchange of value. And I'm actually not surprised that internationally, once you said that that was a bigger, the bigger market, um, which is one of the challenges of fintech is how do you, how do you work and expand in those markets? And, and Uber actually admitted this in their perspectives because now that, you know, they're, they're public, right? They have to put this information out there. And they said that sometimes there could be violent crime, there could be tax avoidance, like there's real genuine concerns that sometimes they may not see this cash at all. Like it's a risk now, um, which they probably never talked about before because they weren't a public company. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by BQE Core. As many of you know, I'm all about the niches and niche apps. Putting your business clients in the proper niche app is providing them with a 100% solution versus at best the 85% solution of a standalone accounting app. If you have clients that are architects, engineers, consultants, or lawyers, Core is the app for them to best manage their firm, increase their staff productivity, and ultimately increase their profits. You don't need to juggle between multiple apps. Core has it all and an easy-to-use, all-in-one app for project management, including time and expense tracking, budgets, forecasting, client billing, and accounting. Even though Core is an all-in-one platform, it still works nicely with the apps like Google Drive, Dropbox, OneDrive, QuickBooks, Xero, and AccountRight, offering you and your clients the maximum amount of flexibility. Core offers a full-function mobile app and recently launched a cutting-edge voice-based assistant for your smart speaker of choice. To learn even more about BQE Core, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash core. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-O-R-E. Did I mention that BQE Core works great for bookkeepers, CPAs, and accounting firms too? Speaking of business models that don't work or inefficiencies, I should say, UPS is eliminating 64 accounting jobs at its facility in Copal, Texas, the reason? Outsourcing. A UPS spokesperson told the Dallas Morning News that the package delivery company is outsourcing transactional finance and accounting work in order to let employees, quote, do more strategic work that can make a greater impact on our business and provide them with enhanced career opportunities, unquote. Small number, but I saw this ongoing concern and it follows United Airlines, their coverage of United Airlines laying off people, Walmart laying off accountants. Every week, it's another story. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's always we're talking a lot about there's not enough job, there's not enough CPAs, there's not enough accountants, right? The the job market is really tight. But I think what this shows is that it's only tight if you're keeping your skills up to date. If you're still doing the same thing you were doing 20 years ago, and I'm, I imagine these employees were probably cutting paper checks and you know just doing uh, really old school type of accounting work, then you know you will get outsourced and somebody's going to take your job that's using automation. Well, you, we talked about this a few weeks back where ultimately there's their data shows and the senior management has improving budgets to give to accounting departments to improve processes. Yeah. And it wasn't getting done. Yep. And then what's happening is two, three years in a row of that, they're saying, forget it, I'll just outsource the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So if any of you have budget money from your upper management to implement some automation and be in to improve your accounting department, you probably should do it because you if not, you're it. gonna be you're gonna be on the podcast next week. Hey so Megan, I'm curious. You do bookkeeping now primarily in your new firm. What's it called again? The new enterprise? Snow and Blair. And Stone Blair, are you going to be still doing that or are you, you, are you going to be doing tax? Like, how do you do the taxes for your clients? So we partner with CPA firms um, and mm-hmm. accounting firms to do the tax piece. We really are focused on bookkeeping, general advisory, compliance, really getting good technology and fintech implemented um, to streamline processes and eliminate waste. So a lot of the same things yeah. you're talking about there. 
So do you know how often that CPA firm you work with raises their rates? Do they do it every year, every couple of years or or every, you know, how often do they do it? Mm, we see on average of every two to three years. I, it, frankly, in my opinion, they're not doing it often enough um, because the CPA firms that we work with, we vet pretty heavily and they're doing a lot of advisory. They're, you know, we require quarterly meetings with people's CPAs. They should be doing their tax planning as we go. There shouldn't be any tax mm-hmm. planning happening April 1st. Yeah. So that fits really well with a chart that I saw in accounting today on how often tax preparers raise their rates. Apparently, only 37% of tax preparers raise their rates every year. 32% do it every two years. 16% do it every three years. And then other is 15%. And I don't even know what that, like maybe they don't raise their rates ever. <laughs> um, so like I saw this and I thought, wow, that's crazy that they're not raising, that everybody isn't raising their rates every year because it's money left on the table big time. Or you end up, even if you manage to catch up with, say, somebody who is doing it every year, you have to do, do it more, right? So if you raise your rates 5% every year, in order to catch up, if you do it every two years, you got to raise your rates more. That just seems like bad bad management or you know bad practice management if you're not doing that. Maybe these firms are getting extra efficient and their costs are going down. They don't need to raise their rates, so their margins are increasing. Actually, that's a good point, David. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> sure. But yes. you should be raising your rates anyway. You should be raising your rates anyway just for inflation, right? Uh, but I, I actually, I, I understand this as a, you know, when I was in practice, it was hard to to do it because I didn't have necessarily a, a, a system for auto, always raising rates every single year. Well, I did. Once I implemented proposal software, we did practice ignition. Then there was that annual renewal, and that was an opportunity to raise rates. But I'm curious to know, Megan, um, do you raise your rates every year or are you systematic about it? How do you do it? I'm completely guilty as charged. We've been really focused on the last three years of getting people onto sort of fixed fee engagements. Um, What's properly known in the industry is value pricing. Um, So we, it's more of a change of scope that comes with a change in price. So it's not that people are seeing, well, I'm paying more for the exact same work there's usually some kind right. of a change in that scope. So it's not that we're trying to hide anything, but it's it's more of a conversation and more of a rolling a rolling thing that's happening. And that, I think that's becoming more of an industry trend. Um, there was recently an article, um, it, I think it was in CPA Practice Advisor, about the perpetual accounting methodology and really sort of seeing a move towards doing away with annual engagement letters and some of the formality that we associate particularly with CPA practices. And that's always been the trend within the bookkeeping industry because we're not bound again by the same sort of rigidity. So I think you see some of the trend movement happen in bookkeeping first because it's easier. Gotcha. So you mentioned you're doing value pricing now or you're, you've transitioned mm-hmm. your firm to doing value pricing. What about the CPA firm that you work with? When they do the taxes and the tax planning, are they still billing hourly? Are they doing, like, how do they price it for your clients? Nearly every CPA firm we work with is working on a fixed fee engagement, although I doubt they would call it value pricing. So, like, what, how does that, how, how would they price out a typical return? They would price out the typical return based on the number of K-1s and various investment portfolios that they would be needing to work with. The majority of our clients are high net worth individuals and people that make um, private equity investment Uh seed to A stage. So that really drives what's going on. Once we've established a relationship with them, they know the consistency of the bookkeeping that they're getting. So they don't have to worry about sort of 
sifting through mess. Interesting. So not raising your rates is basically leaving money on the table every year. And, you know, I was guilty of it. A lot of us are guilty of it. Obviously, according to the stat, only 37% do it every year. So that's money being left on the table by tax practitioners. The IRS is also leaving a lot of money on the table. According to new research from Indiana University, Kelly School of Business, the IRS left $34.3 billion in revenue on the table from big business uh, in the last few years. And that's because the IRS is uh, underfunded and they don't have enough auditors to audit big business. And so uh, this is the first study that actually attempted to estimate just how much revenue is being lost because we don't have auditors going out and questioning the aggressive tax positions of some large corporations, $34.3 billion. That's a lot of money to leave on the table. I know, right? And that's the thing that's funny is like the IRS should be like the last thing, like should be the first thing that we fund, right? Because you're spending money to make money, essentially. So if you ask me, underfunding the IRS is just a, another way of creating a loophole for a, for big corporations, which gives them an advantage over small businesses that you know, may not be taking these aggressive tax positions. Yeah. David, you got any other stories? Um, yeah, the entertaining article from Matt Path, he's down in Australia. Mm-hmm. He he was on the uh, podcast once. He really talks about uh, how zero QuickBooks online, they can really start with apps attacking mid-market, yep. right? And he, he's a big believer in that. And his focus has really been on that mid-market enterprise level tip software. But he, um, he, he wants to stay close to his roots. And he has three clients or three businesses he runs. And he's been running them as an experiment. One company on zero, one on QuickBooks online, and one on MYOB. And he's so frustrated now, he's stopping the experiment on MYOB. And so he has a nice little uh, seven reasons why I dumped MYOB essentials. And it's a LinkedIn post. And it's kind of shocking. Like, number one reason was reports don't have totals. What? Yeah, there is no total on a report. And he puts a screenshot in there. Um, Many of the reports are just PDF. You can't get to them any other way. You can't output them to Microsoft Excel. So he's... uh, uh, upset about that. He's upset that they don't have integrations to very many apps. Um, so he gave a specific example because he uses LifePlan um, to monitor their business plans, and it doesn't integrate with MYOB. It only integrates with QBO and Zero. Um, you can't do recurring transactions. It's very light on payroll. It's super light on mobile. The mobile functionality is not great. So, so f- he just it must it was such a painful experiment. He's just he's done using that, and that's probably not good for <laughs> yes. MIOB. No, yeah, not that great. Um, because because it wasn't like, you know, people do those articles. I'll compare these three apps side by side and they write a blog post and they, they looked at each app for two hours. Like this has been going on for a couple months yeah. and he's he just can't handle it anymore. Hey, so David, you remember our talk last week about WeWork? You brought that story about uh, WeWork's financials? Oh yeah, WeWork we and uh, the, the questionable business model. Yes. Well, Amy Walker, CPA, had some feedback for us on that story. She is in a co-working space in Houston. It's not a WeWork. Uh, And she also picked that co-working space up as a client. Since uh, moving in three years ago, she says that the dynamic has shifted more to enterprise. Companies in other cities are using it for a satellite office. Some downtown companies are letting suburban employees office at the co-working space instead of spending hours on the freeway. And she's kind of had the chance to watch it evolve over the last few years, which I thought was interesting because, you know, when you and I talked about it, I I mentioned that I was at the WeWork in Hollywood 
here in Los Angeles. And when I was there back in you know, 2015, I didn't see a lot of big businesses at the WeWork. But that has apparently shifted. And Amy's story backs that up, that more and more big businesses are using co-working spaces for their employees. Yeah, because I, I think co-working spaces used to be, I wouldn't say hipster places, but it's it's going to be your independent, your web designers, your independent coders, subcontractors, people like that. But just like everything else, like um, South by Southwest, eventually the corporations discover it, right? Yeah. And they've rolled in. Megan, where do you work? Do you have a co-working office? Do you work at home? How do you do it? So I actually built an addition on my house five years ago um, that has, you know, some office space, a reception area for the occasional walk-in client because we still have a few of those. Um, and then the rest of my team works remotely from around the country. So we have office space um, because it's convenient, but not because we need it. Gotcha. And everybody in your on your team works from home or do they work from like co-working spaces? I have, I have two people that come into the office um, and everybody else works remotely. Although we did have our whole team on Nantucket Island for the first time ever in the history of our company all at once this summer, which was special. Wow. That's awesome. So Megan, you might be interested to hear about this survey, or not a survey, it's a a research study in the Harvard Business Review. Uh, The article is, is it time to let employees work from anywhere? And, you know, if you're a listener to the show, you know that I'm a big fan of remote work. And there's a lot of studies that find that remote work is great for employees and that people are actually more productive. And here's another one. We haven't had a big one in, in a long time. These researchers publishing in the Harvard Business Review, studied the effects of a work-from-home-anywhere program instituted in 2012 among patent examiners at the U.S. Patent and Trade Office. They analyzed productivity data for patent examiners, which, you know, they're highly educated, specialized professionals. Maybe we could think of them kind of similar to bookkeepers or accountants. They analyzed productivity data for patent examiners who switched from a work-from-home program to a work-from-anywhere program. And after switching to work from anywhere, the, work, the examiner's work output increased by 4.4% with no significant increase in rework. So another study that shows that if you let people work from anywhere, they're more productive. We have um, security protocols built in for our employees, but we really do encourage that. And many a person for me has, you know, fired up a hotspot on a um, on a soccer field or someplace else so that they could do what they needed to do as a parent or as a child of a sick adult or or whatever that might be, and and get the work done and meet the deadline. And you have to work anywhere. I actually tweeted this out this week. I was at the car dealership getting my wife's car serviced, and I thought I was being super productive. I had my laptop. I took a meeting. I was hammering away. I was just in the zone. And then some guy shows up, pulls out his laptop and a second monitor and just one-ups me. <laughs> so we're, like, anybody, are, people are going to work where they can get work done at, when they can get it done. And here's uh, something that may help you build a work from anywhere program for your firm. And that is help desk software. Ryan Lozanis over at futurefirm.co wrote one of my favorite blog posts I've read in a long time. It's called help desk software for accounting firms. What and why? And he basically dives in deep to the concept of help desk software, which if you work in software, you are very familiar with this because this is the these are the apps that you use to do customer support. People email support at you know myapp.com and then all of those emails go into a shared inbox where they can then be worked on by your customer support staff. We're all very familiar with using this when we contact Zero or QuickBooks or any of these apps. Well, Ryan says 
accounting firm should be using help desk software too. And he lists out some options, you know, Zendesk, Teamwork Desk, Groove, Fresh Desk. There's lots of them. And he mentions a lot of the benefits. Some of the benefits include having a centralized place to search all client communication. You can avoid emails slipping through the cracks because whoever received it didn't remember to respond. You can get a, a pulse on support. You know how quickly your team is responding to client questions, to client emails. So if you have a, say, 24-hour response policy in your firm, then you can actually monitor and implement that and make that happen. And you can use automation, right? You can create these templates that you use over and over again to respond to clients for questions that they have all the time and save time. You get the analytics. I, I'm a big fan of this. I didn't actually ever use help desk software in my firm when I had my firm, but it is something that if I did it again, I would absolutely use. And I'm curious to know, Megan, if you use any help desk software or if it's something you've looked into or if you're curious about that. Or chat software, even. Chat software, too, yeah. So we are users of Slack internally for chat, and we do queue up sort of a ticket-type system in there. Um, but for the most part, our our customers don't need a lot of support in that way. We are just part of on a regular system. So no, we don't use a ticketing system like that, um, but we do use Slack to remotely on the fly. You know, So when bookkeepers are making their own hours, um, somebody else is picking up any sort of a support need or um, you know, bookkeeping need on the fly. Although I'm always a big, big believer in that there's no such thing as an accounting emergency. Yeah, that's, that's true. Most of the time there isn't, right? And there's small ways to tiptoe into this, right? Just create an email address for your company. You know, a generic either uh, help at blah, 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 or support at blah, 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 and make all your clients use that one universal inbox mm-hmm. for your company. And then you can start distributing the email that way. Because you could even do just rules and yeah. distribute that out. But, but that's kind of what I did is uh, I use Google Groups. So I had Google Apps for my firm and you can create as many email distribution lists as you want using Google Groups. So I would I had a distro list or I had an email alias for every client. So it would be client XYZ at cloudsourcedaccounting.com. And then if they emailed that address, it would go to all the people on the account. And it would be all saved in a shared inbox there. So at least we had uh, the emails all going to the right people, right? Everybody had a copy of it. Um, and then it was nice because I... Uh, as I was handing off clients that I've worked on personally to staff as we grew the practice, I could still go into that shared inbox and I could see all the emails for that client, but I didn't. I could unsubscribe from those emails or I could receive them as a digest if I wanted to. And that's why we're use, utilizing Slack is we're taking a similar methodology, but we're getting things out of the inbox because that just creates for us more of a security risk of you know malware or ransomware or something like that sneaking in so we've really taken all of our internal communication out of email um and the only things that end up in email are from clients and we've we've tried some other some other ways around that and we just really haven't been able to find a replacement for our email inbox yet so i've got one last story that i want to get megan's input on while we've got her so this is Bridging the Gap Between Your Roles as a Bookkeeper. It's an article that appeared on Accounting Web by Billy Ann Grigg. And she writes from the perspective of an independent bookkeeper who is preparing the books for a CPA firm or a tax preparer to do the books. So, Megan, I think this kind of fits what you do, right? Right up my alley. Currently. Yeah. So, so uh, I love this article because she challenges 
or she asked the question of the reader, who do you work for? As a bookkeeper, do you work for the CPA or do you work for your client? Who's really the client? And I think what we would want to say is not the CPA, right? I mean, you know, we work with the CPA, but the CPA is not the client. But she says the, the way that most bookkeepers are trained to prepare the books or the way that we actually do it really is making the CPA the center and making the CPA the client because the books are often done on the tax return basis, right? They're done cash basis. Any expenses that can't be deducted on the business tax return are excluded from the books or posted to equity, owner's draw, shareholder distributions, et cetera. Depreciation is only done once a year using the numbers the CPA provides. And, you know, the purchases that fall under that safe harbor threshold are posted as expenses instead of assets, even though it might make more sense to show them on the balance sheet. And so the disadvantage of doing books specifically just to satisfy the compliance aspect of the tax return is that you're not getting the full picture, right? That, that the books can be a useful management tool in addition to being a tool for the tax return. And she says, if you want to really create value uh, as a bookkeeper, then it's worth not doing the books for tax prep only and doing their bookkeeping for management purposes. And so th this is what um, I would do for my bigger clients is, right, we had them on accrual basis books that we could then convert to cash. And we would include a lot of that stuff that you know may not be tax deductible, but is a part of their business. An example in this article is baseball tickets. Right, which may not be deductible, but they're still a business expense. And then, you know, you have to do a little more work to get it ready for taxes. But as long as you have that understanding, you can still do it. And I thought this was a great article because you know, everyone's talking about advisory. How can how can we all move to more of an advisory model? And what better way to do that than to actually be you know preparing books that are more useful month to month, not just once a year? So, and that's what she says: like, just have one conversation about your books have two purposes. One yeah. to run your business and make business decisions, and the other is for taxes, and like that's advising, right? Yeah, uh, I agree. It's a it's a good article. It's a good find. So, Megan, I'm curious to know what what do you think about this? How how do you do it? We start every conversation and every engagement with that conversation, and all, almost verbatim, um, we work for the client. The purposes of the books are primarily to run the business. It's it is your management accounting system. The taxes which are important, they're very important, but they should be secondary to running, you know, your company and making informed decisions. And you can almost always create a tax return out of a set of books that's been prepared for the purpose of running a business. Well, that's all I've got this week. David, if people want to get in touch with us, they want to talk to you, where should they go to find you? The best place is going to be on Twitter. I'm at David Leary. And I am at Blake T. Oliver. And Megan, if people want to connect with you online, find out what you're up to, what's the best place for them to go? Twitter at Fogged in Books. Now, are you going to have to change your Twitter handle now that you're getting away from using the word bookkeeping? I think so. It's a full-blown rebrand. Rebranding is so much fun. Full-blown. And you can find the Cloud Accounting Podcast on, just search for it. It's on Facebook. It's on LinkedIn. It's on Twitter. Please uh, follow us there as well. And if you want to get the show notes emailed to you every week automatically, head over to my website, blakeoliver.com, and click the blue subscribe banner at the top. Put in your email address, and you'll get a link to the show notes whenever the episodes are published. And that will include all the links to all of the articles that we talked about, making it really easy for you to go and dig in deeper to any of these topics if you liked them. And when you listen this week, email the episode to a friend so they can listen too. 
David, I'll talk to you again next week. Uh, Megan, I look forward to seeing you soon in a couple weeks at Accountex. And until then, have a, have a great uh, weekend. See you soon. Thanks for having me. Bye, everybody.